Welcome to your province, your Premier. I'm Wayne Nelson, your host and moderator. I'll be speaking with Premier Danielle Smith every Saturday morning at this time about a few of the issues of the day. But really, again, it's your opportunity to speak with the Premier directly, to ask your questions, voice your concerns, whatever's on your mind. And a a reminder again, because we got so many text messages and so many phone calls coming in, please keep it short and respectful. All right, Premier Danielle Smith is ready and waiting to take your calls. Premier Smith, welcome to the show. Hello, Wayne. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Uh, A number of announcements from your government this week and issues raised, but all, of course, overshadowed by the tragic shooting deaths of Edmonton police officers, uh, Constable Travis Jordan and Constable Brett Ryan. Condolences continue to pour in, along with questions about how this could have happened. Albertans, of course, will know more uh, as the investigation continues. Now, I have a couple of questions to kick off our show this morning, and I may try to squeeze in some more as time permits. But, of course, our listeners on the phones and text lines will have their own questions. So the provincial government has finally released a report on the effect of the minimum wage increases under the uh, previous NDP government. The findings of an expert panel were released three years ago and never released until now, and only because of pressure from the chair of the committee. So why the delay? I think part of what happened during the the COVID era is that everybody was so focused on on dealing with the crisis of the day that there were a number of things that were in process that didn't feel appropriate at the time to release. And so when the the chair of this committee raised it, I I called our our Minister of Jobs and Economy and Northern Development, Brian Jean, and said, is there any reason we wouldn't release this report? And he said, no. I said, okay, well, let's release it. And so that's the reason why it's been put out. And I'll just give you the high-level summary of of what it found. It found that when the NDP increased the minimum wage as fast as they did, it resulted in job losses, the 26,000 job losses, especially hard-hitting in rural and especially hard-hitting of young people. And so that, that I think, just demonstrates that there was a sort of a reckless era that we had there that resulted in a multitude of job losses. And under the NDP, it was 183,000. Now, where we're at today is that the minimum wage is, I mean, we're not the highest and we're not the, uh, the lowest. We're kind of middle of the pack, BC, Ontario, and the northern regions have a, a higher minimum wage. So we, it's it's not we're not going to be rolling it back. But it, it does show that when you have these kinds of adjustments, you have to do them slowly. That was the policy before, is to increase minimum wage with the rate of inflation. But doing such a dramatic increase all, all at once, it resulted in job loss. So the recommendation from the panel for to, to reinstate that lower minimum wage, um, what you're saying, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, is you know, that might have been the case three years ago, but now things have sort of leveled off. Uh, the other recommendation was for an entry wage rate for less experienced workers. Uh, what What is your uh, protocol for that? What are you th- the- planning to do? Yeah, the advice of my of my uh, of my minister Brian Jean is to he, we want to get the report out, but we're we're not going to be changing the okay. minimum wage. All right. Uh, in the face of soaring electricity rates, everybody can identify with that. Uh, your government is reviewing the future of the regulated rate option, but what other options are there? Well, I can tell you, I've been following this for some time, and I bet if you asked anybody what they thought the regulated rate option was, um, they they would think that it's a government-protected rate so that they don't pay higher rates. And it's not. It's the exact opposite. It is the most volatile rate. 
And when I heard when I first got elected that it was going to spike up to 29 cents a kilowatt hour, I said, we cannot allow for this to continue on where people think they're protected. And it's the very opposite right when we get into the winter season. So the option, the other option is having a fixed price contract or a variable contract. People can, can, can still choose to stay on this variable rate if they want. Uh, but I, I, but if you lock in for a term, then you can get a much lower rate. I, I did that a few years ago and I was able to lock in for a rate of 5.9 cents a kilowatt hour. I think some of the contracts right now are 9 to 11 cents a kilowatt hour, which is still uh, much lower than what we saw this spike being. I think what I observed is just that, that people feel they're protected. They're not. And yeah. we've got to make sure that we don't give anybody some false sense of security because the people who end up getting hit the most are fixed income seniors. They're people who are um, renters. They're people who are newcomers. And that's just not right. We've got to do something more to, to make sure that they have a, a lot more price stability. So we're going to be figuring out the way, the best way to, to phase that rate out. But I would encourage people to do it now. Just uh, if you if you are looking at your power bill and seeing how high your rates are, at any moment, you can sign on to one of those fixed price contracts. And we're going to do it anyway. So, um, so you may as well get started on it now. All right, let's go right to the phones. And we're going to hear from Chris in Edmonton. Go ahead, Chris. You're on the air with Premier Daniel Smith. Yeah, good morning, uh, Madam Premier and Wayne. Um, my question relates to uh, Russell Brown and uh, his being benched uh, off the Supreme Court in the face of uh, an extremely important appeal to be heard next week in the Supreme Court. Um, uh, if, if Brown isn't on the bench when this appeal is heard, then uh, Alberta's uh, one of two nominees will not be hearing this, and I think our chances of winning that appeal will be compromised. I'd like to know if you're aware of who made this complaint about Justice Brown. Why is he being benched when he was the one that was assaulted? And uh, who decided that he can't sit on this Bill 69 challenge? I don't know much about the the details. There has been some uh, some video that video that's emerged from the incident that happened in Arizona. So I've been watching the the American news on this, and it sounds like there is a a bit of a two side. He said, she said on this on this particular story. So it is really unfortunate timing that he ended up in this place when we need. That all the voices that we can that can be uh, supporting Alberta. I'll uh, I want to talk to my justice minister, uh, Tyler Shandro, to see. This is the, the the problem that we're in now is that we need an answer on this because it is such a devastating piece of legislation, and I'm not keen to see it delayed until who knows when until either. Um, the justice is cleared or they appoint a, a new person to the bench. And so we've we've got a real conundrum here. It's a real problem. But that um, I, I don't know that the, that the, that that it would be wise for us to delay it. The thing I would say is that it's such a bad piece of legislation. Every single province is with us in fighting against it. And so um, if Quebec sees it as a bit of an existential threat to them, as does Ontario and British Columbia, it, it may be it may be persuasive to the to the bench that this is uh, that this is an unconstitutional piece of legislation as we believe it is. So I, I'm hopeful that we can continue on with this. But I share your concern. Just such terrible timing because he was such a champion on the on the initial uh, on the carbon tax. He he was the 
the dissenting judge. I suspect I know where he would land on this one as well. And it's just such a shame that uh, that he's not going to be able to be around for this. All right. We're going to pause for a break. I'm Wayne Nelson. I'll be back with Premier Danielle Smith and more of your calls. And we'll get to some texts when we return on Your Province, Your Premier. If you're just joining us today, you are listening to Your Province, Your Premier, heard every Saturday morning for listeners throughout Alberta. In Edmonton on 630 Chad and here on QR Calgary. Your opportunity to be heard by Premier Danielle Smith. Uh, in case you don't have the numbers, here they are. In Calgary, you can call or text at 403-974-8255. At Edmonton, 780-496-00. Six, three. I want to get right to the phones. Uh, a very, very busy day today, so please be patient. Uh, we are going to go with uh, Justin in Edmonton. Go ahead, Justin. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Good morning, Premier Smith. Hey, Justin. So during the Your Leadership campaign, you promised to restore parental rights and education model after what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida, where he's prevented the students from learning about age-inappropriate content. And, we, and, I, and I'd like to thank you for your work for continuing the new curriculum rollout that was started under then Premier Kenny. So I'd like to know what your plans are to expand parental choice and make sure that and make sure that our kids um, have a world-class education that it will teach them age-appropriate topics in the, in your next in your next term, should you get one. Thanks, Justin. You know, there's lots of reasons why parents are choosing alternatives. Uh, when you look at, for instance, the STEM school that uh, has, has been met with such enthusiasm, science, technology, engineering, math, they're even opening up a, a campus in in, uh, in Edmonton as well. So I think that there's all kinds of reasons why parents are, are deciding that they want to choose different options. So one of the things that we've done is that we're funding a school in Calgary that will operate as a charter school hub. Uh, I think it's a 50 to $70 million building and there'll be room for 10 different new charter schools to incubate there. And we're pretty excited to see about what kind of choices come forward. The other thing we're doing is we're, we're trying to give additional support to the uh, to all schools for the, some of the core things that we've identified as a government are important. Number one, addressing the issue of learning loss. And so there's additional resources that go to every school on that. There's also mental health support that we're giving to every school. And we're also giving uh, busing grants too, so that we can help defray the cost of transportation. And so I've heard feedback from the independent schools that it is very well received. And so we'll continue doing those kinds of supports because we do support parent choice. We think that uh, although most parents choose their local community school, whether it's the public school or the Catholic school, I think 90% of kids or more are in uh, those those types of schools. We we also know that uh, it's not it's not the great greatest fit for everyone, and so we want to make sure that we're supporting parents in whatever option they choose. All right, um, to that education uh, file, Premier Smith, uh, the province has unveiled some new science and French curriculums to be rolled out this fall, and I also wanted to uh, tie that into a text message that just came in from Calgary. Uh, the texter says, why won't the UCP listen to teachers about the garbage curriculum? It shows you all want the kids of the future to fail. The teachers know what you want them to teach is wrong, but somehow you can't see that. I think it's um, that that's mischaracterizing the, the, what we're hearing from the teachers. The <laughs> teachers are concerned, and I think I think there is some concern that we're asking them to implement um, grades all at once because that wasn't how things were done in the past. And so, in the past, I think what would happen is that you'd roll out the grade one curriculum, and then the next year you'd have the grade two curriculum rollout, and then by the time the kids graduated in grade twelve, they had exposure to all of the different curriculum. But information is moving so fast, and and that kind of approach, I can tell you part of the problem that we encountered, our 
French language and French literature programming hadn't been updated since 1998, and our science curriculum hadn't been updated since 1996. When you think of how much has changed in 1996, I mean, I I, I did joke that back in 1996 is when when I first got introduced to the internet. It was at a as an intern on a dial-up machine doing doing, doing accessing the internet that way, and we've got we've got the genome that has been mapped in the meantime. We've got exploration in space that has happened. There's all kinds of reasons why we have to, to bring in the new science curriculum. So what we heard, and this is the important part, as we rolled it out as a pilot last year, there were 240 schools that piloted 22,000 students and I think uh, hundreds of teachers. We got their feedback. We made some modifications to the curriculum. And so one of the things I think is so important about the science curriculum is that we're going to be making sure that there's access to programming so kids can learn how to do programming because that is going to be an essential skill of the future. They're going to learn about dinosaurs. Initially, we uh, didn't have dinosaurs in the curriculum, so that's pretty important in Alberta. There'll be um, pe- Kids will learn where their food comes from because I think as kids get more disconnected generationally from the farm, they need to have a little bit more structured education about how to grow food, where it comes from. And we also need to educate kids on our energy business so that they know where energy comes from, why it's important, how, what we do here. So those are the reasons why we we knew we needed to move forward with the K to three in science and we'll do K, uh, four to six next year. And we'll just keep on uh, hear, listening and hearing from teachers and, and rolling it out that way. There's still the social studies curriculum to come, the final curriculum. We know we have to do more consultation on both of those. And so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll delay those until we get the, the appropriate feedback to make the changes. I can remember my social studies teacher from, uh, oh, I think it was grade seven. And the example was, we're going to split the class into four groups. And it was regarding the French Revolution. I can still remember that. And each group was secretly given a different set of instructions. One uh, was the group that represented the workers. One represented the elite and the goal was to make everything work and avoid the French Re- Revolution. And we, we couldn't make it happen. So I think that was a statement on, on current politics. Wasn't that, that's really interesting. I mean, that's again, I mean, when the social studies curriculum comes forward and it'll be a little while yet before we do that, I, wouldn't that be interesting to have those kind of exercises in the, in the social studies curriculum today? Because I, I think that really does get at the heart of why politics is so difficult. <laughs> so yeah. it's a great example. It, it made such an impact on me, um, Premier Smith, that I chose not to get into politics. Anyways, uh, on to the next call. Uh, we're going to hear from Steve uh, in Calgary, uh, wildfire season. Go ahead, Steve. You're on with Premier Smith. Five people from QR ran for public office, so good luck with that, Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ain't going to happen. Sorry. Okay, so wildfire season began March 1. Alberta has 150,000 square miles of boreal forest, 72,000 square miles of grassland. What I would like to see is thin out the forest around Swan Hills to 60 trees per acre. There is no plan B. If you have 200 trees per acre, you can't fight that. And if you throw a lit cigarette butt out your window, I would like to see you lose your car for 30 days. You also have to pay for the storage. You do it a second time, you lose your vehicle permanently. So you'll have to buy a new car because when I'm told 80% of these fires are started by human activity. Well, you know what? Maybe there is a solution, but the current one we're using isn't working because this week I saw two butts go out the window. It wasn't going to start a fire because there's snow in the ditch, but that's not the case when it turns into dry grass. Anyways, my thoughts. Thanks. Thanks for that. 
Steve. We used to call Steve Stats Steve because he always has great stats whenever he calls in. I'm glad he's still he, he's still keeping up with that tradition. And he's he's right. Whether it's cigarettes or whether it's uh, you know hot hot ATV pipes or whether it's uh, campfires, that most of the fires are started by because of of uh, human activity. And I don't know if we go down quite as far as he's suggesting on confiscating people ve- people's vehicles for throwing the butts out. But I, I can tell you that this is an area that because I've gone through. Um, two different major incidents, the floods in 2013 when I was elected and then on the air with the Fort McMurray fires is part of the reason why I made Mike Ellis responsible for public safety and emergency response. So the Alberta Emergency Management Agency is under his purview. I've already done a tour. He's already done a tour. I talk to him frequently about the fact that we have entered uh, fire season. Flood season comes a little bit later, and we have to be prepared if something comes up because it, it seems like every year, every couple of years, it's it's one of those two great disasters. And we want to make sure that everybody is talking to each other, that we've learned from some of the errors in the past, that we've got to make sure that we do have good coordination between those who fight fires in the forest and those who fight fires in the city. We've got to make sure we're bringing in as many resources as we need to in the private sector to be able to lend a hand. So those are the active conversations that I, I have with uh, with Mike. I know it's on the responsive side. Then on the proactive side, uh, I also, you probably saw, pulled out forestry parks and tourism and, and, and made a new minister there in, in Minister Todd Lowen and doing the kind of proactive management that you're talking about around forestry to make sure that we're doing fire breaking. Uh, 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 that Those are the, the, the kinds of things that I've asked him to look into in his mandate letter. So right. I don't know that we're going to be able to do it this fire season because, of course, I didn't get elected until October. We were already well into winter at this point. Fire season is here. But, Steve, I'm, I'm on the same page with you. We need to be more proactive on that. All right. Let's uh, change gears and uh, turn to health care. A texter says, uh, Premier Smith, when is Airdrie going to get a hospital, not just another upgrade to urgent care? We are one of the fastest growing cities in Canada, town of low population. Example, Olds and Didsbury have hospitals. You provide a small amount to barely do a study on a Calgary North Airdrie hospital, which we will likely not see for eons to come. I've been here since 1985. How much longer are we going to wait? Well, part of what we're we, the reason we wanted to put that in is I've heard loud and clear that whether it's Airdrie or whether it's North Calgary, it has to be accessible. I mean, when you look at the South Campus down south, that is accessible not only to South Calgary residents but also to anybody coming from Okotoks and from uh, and from further south. So that was the the thinking that we had is whether it's in uh, Airdrie proper or a little bit closer to the city, we need something that's going to be able to support that entire community because boy, I mean, anyone trying to go into the Peter Lougheed is as as well they're telling me that it is that it is also um often over uh oversubscribed and and that there's we need to be able to find more ways to be able to support the folks in uh, in north calgary so that's why we're moving in that direction we we have a number of projects that we need to look at in edmonton the Stollery, if you can believe it, for those who live in Calgary, the Stollery doesn't have its own standalone hospital. It's uh, it's in the it's in the uh, U of A hospital. Uh, same thing with um, the uh, Edmonton South. They're having the exact same discussion that uh, that we're having here in in the Calgary area about what where how we need to support our growing communities in the South. So we we um, one thing that I should mention to you is that. I, I don't know if I mentioned this before. I talk about it a lot in speeches, so if I'm repeating myself, I apologize. But I did go and do a tour of a charter surgical center in Edmonton that has managed to 
create a single floor surgical suite, 12 operating bays, and with a with a very streamlined design that will allow them to do up to 8,500 surgeries. So knees, hips, uh, shoulders, ankles, spines. And when I asked them, how much did that cost you? They said $25 million. And so it got me thinking, wow, every time I've seen a project that we do, it starts off as a billion and then it scopes out at two billion and then it gets constructed at five billion. And I thought maybe we need to recalibrate and figure out a better way of doing construction. Maybe we need to do more engineering and design at the front end. Maybe we need to bring the doctors in earlier so that we can design them properly. So my my hope would be that we would be able to uh, find a, a more streamlined way to build those more cost effectively so that we can move very quickly on all of the priorities that we have because this uh, this province is going to keep on growing and we've got to keep on building to be able to match that growth. But I think everybody is equally frustrated when a, a project ends up going massively over budget. Uh, I'm very frustrated by that because it means we can't do more uh, we, we can't do more of this kind of construction. So that's the, the 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 next phase. That's why we're spending the time on the design. We we have to get it right. Okay, Douglas is uh, calling in from Edmonton. Uh, looks like a dental-related question. Go ahead, Douglas. You're on with Premier Smith. Uh, good morning, Premier Smith. Thank you for taking my call. First, I commend commend you and your party for the willingness to address uh, and bring health care to the forefront for Albertans. Uh, my question is about dental health and specifically intravenous dental sedation. For those that are fearful of the needle or anxious mm -hmm. and are in pain and need this service, so my name is Douglas Lobb. I'm a dentist in Edmonton for over four decades, a professor at the University of Alberta School of Dentistry, <clears throat> and an expert in dental sedation. So dental sedation, what's its impact in Alberta? It's about between 12 and 18,000 procedures per year require intravenous dental sedation by specially trained general dentists and their teams. Uh, Premier Smith, this is 12 to 18,000 Albertans who don't have to go to the hospital for dental sedation, especially in rural Alberta where sedation anesthesia services may not be readily available. So what's new in sedation? We have and and your, your question, Douglas. Okay. We have international uh, methods of providing dental sedation that involves using smart infusion pumps driven by artificial intelligence software. And Premier Smith, you talked about costs of of health services, these pumps are between eight and ten thousand dollars. They're not in the million dollar bracket. Approved by Health Canada, uh, yet the College of Dental Surgeons of Alberta and Alberta Health will not examine its feasibility despite worldwide use and three published studies. Uh, Premier mm -hmm. Smith, can you help us facilitate a meeting between Health Minister Coping and the College of Dental Surgeons of Alberta to advance intravenous dental sedation so Albertans have dental care options. This is important for all Albertans. Thank you. It may have been a long question, but it's a short answer. Yes. I mean, those are exactly the kind of innovations that we want to see more of. So I would say, um, Doc, if you can, if you can, uh, call, if you can email my office and it's uh, premier at gov.ab.ca, I'll, I'll, I'll let my correspondence guy know that it's coming in and we'll, uh, we'll be able to, to get you connected on that. Cause th that's the, we want to be the center 
of innovation in Alberta. And, and that to me sounds like it would be, um, it would be a, a fabulous new innovation. You can see he's not even asking for the funding for it. He's just asking for the permission to buy the equipment so he can do more of these surgeries. My, my mother-in-law was, um, was also had to, to do a sedation when she went for dental care. So I'm, I'm sympathetic. I know people who have a great, great fear of, uh, of dentistry. And so the, it makes some sense to make it as convenient as possible for people. So thanks for that doc. We'll see if, if we can get that together. All right. Uh, Still on healthcare. Anne is calling in from Edmonton. A nurse practitioner question. Go ahead, Anne. Hi. I would like. First of all, I'd like to just say I support your initiatives. I support the Sovereignty Act. I support the, our own gun control. I'm really happy with the work that you're doing, and it might be our only hope. My question is: With us being so short of healthcare workers, why are we not funding nurse practitioners? I asked that question right from the beginning to my health minister. I also asked that question of Dr. John Cowell, and everybody says, yeah, we should. So I think we're in the process of just trying to work out what the uh, the terms are. I don't want to prejudge what the what the uh, contract will look like, but I think the future is going to be team practice, and nurse practitioners are going to be central to that. I, I, I met with the Nurse Practitioners Association while I was in the leadership phase, and one told me that she'd begun her practice in February of 2020, with the uh, help of, and coordination with the doctor. And she now has 2,200 patients. So I feel like there's a huge uh, opportunity here for us to be able to expand that type of practice where you may have a doctor, nurse practitioners, other health professionals. We've got a deal, we've got a, a, a contract with the doctors that talk about al alternative payment models. And they've agreed with us that we're going to work towards having 25% of doctors on these alternative payment models, which will allow for us to do the team practice. So we're we're all on the same page and uh, and we're moving in that direction. It's it's also part of the reason why we announced $2 billion for primary care. The, the, when you hear my... Um and you hear my health minister talking about how everyone needs a medical home. That's what he's talking about is that uh, the, the doctors, absolutely, we need to support them. But a lot of doctors are now wanting to move into specialty. They're wanting to do um, uh, work at hospitals. And it, it could be that it's that team practice with the nurse practitioners who are trained almost to the same level as uh, general practitioners, as I understand it. That is going to be, I think, the future of, of being able to ensure we can fill these gaps. So, yeah, we're on the same page on that. And the budget has uh, a 200 million dollar uh, expenditure, I believe, for training more doctors and nurses as well. Completely. We've got 3,400 new spaces that we're going to have for all health health professionals. I believe it's 120 new doctor spaces and 100 residency spaces so that if somebody gets also trained abroad, that's what I hear. we heard a lot of is that now kids couldn't get into school here, so they go to the UK or they go to Australia and then uh, aren't able to get a residency space when they come back. We, we want to make sure that we have more options for that too. All right, a couple of solar panel questions on the text line. Good morning, Premier Smith. I'm curious to know your thoughts on the thousands of acres of cultivated land in Alberta being signed over to solar panels for astronomical prices, and what do you think the cleanup costs will be on these compared to orphan wells? And then Bob from Bergen, uh, another texter, says, uh, Premier Smith, please stop solar farms from devouring our agriculture land. <laughs> I had a meeting yesterday with uh, many of the generators and the uh, those who are in this industry, and I can tell you the number one concern that uh, the industry has is reliability. That uh, we saw in the fall uh, that there were two instances where we were very short on electricity, and on those two days, even though we have five thousand megawatts of installed power for solar and wind, there was only a hundred megawatts generating. 
So we have to be mindful of the kind of environment that we operate in. I'll know, I know that there has been this aspiration that's been put out there that the few, and this is sort of the Stephen Gibault view of the world, that we're going to have 100% of our power grid powered by solar and wind. It doesn't make sense because when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, which happens for a, a lot of time in Alberta, it means that we, uh, we can end up with great instability in the grid. So I'm sensitive to the question. I know reliability is a big issue. It's one of the big fights, quite frankly, that we're having with Ottawa right now. Stephen Gibbeau doesn't want us to be allowed to add any additional natural gas to our power grid. And that's impossible. Uh, we're going to end up with uh, with shortages if we if we don't end up ke- keeping up with the, the kind of growth that we have. So when you hear that we've got to take a strong stance against Ottawa, their clean electricity regs would create additional instability in our system. We've got to be bringing on reliable power, that is available to base load, that's dispatchable, that's available year round, that's going to be my priority because we can't get into the kind of situation that we had this uh, this fall. When, 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 when you have that happen, uh, whether the extra uh, amount of demand comes on because it's too cold or too hot, that be, creates dangerous situations. And so we have to make sure that reliability is our number one. Joe is texting in on the uh, QR, Can- uh, QR Calgary line, just about said QR Canada. Uh, Joe says, Premier Smith, uh, regarding the affordability payments, I have received nothing to date because the registry made a mistake with the bank info and it claims to date that unlike online applications, there's no ability for it to correct the error. Can you please look into this? Thank you. Yes, I can, because we did manage to get the change to the portal so that people could self-correct, because we had about 16,000 people. We had over 1.1 million who were receiving payments, but we had about 16,000 who didn't get their payment because of incorrect bank information. I understand that they updated that in mid-February. I didn't realize that there was a sort of a missing piece with the registry. So let me let me take that back to our affordability and utilities minister, Matt Jones, and see if there's a, another patch that we need to do there. All right, let's go to the phones, and uh, Don is calling in from Edmonton uh, regarding health care costs. Go ahead, Don. You're on with Premier Smith. Hello, Don. Are you still oh, there? Sor- yeah. oh, sorry. I couldn't. My phone screen lit up. Um, actually, uh, speaking of, uh, I was going to talk about health care, but I'll go to um, solar. Um, wind, yeah, it only works service time, but look up Earth batteries, patented in 1865. They used to use them all the time. And uh, there's an entire college off-grid in Saskatchewan uh, using earth batteries. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Doesn't matter what the temperature is, minus 40 or plus 40. Healthcare. I've been looking into all the things that cause diseases in people. And I was thinking, instead of just shoving everybody into the hospital when they get sick, how about we have a system, because we want to be innovative and creative, um, get the heavy metals out and the chemicals out of the food, and uh, get people on a better eating track better diet lifestyle you know everybody wants to live a long time and be healthy and happy so maybe we could start out like a program to uh, take people in that direction well it, it's a good thought i mean i think from from what i i read i, I listened to uh, dr rangan chatterjee who wrote the book the four pillars of health and he says diet sleep 
exercise and making sure that you're managing your stress are, are really foundational keys. I, I don't know that we've managed to find the perfect way for government to get people to uh, to adopt a more nutritious diet. If you, I don't, I'm not sure about the how of that one, but I share your aspiration. And I'll look into earth batteries. Never heard about that before. So I don't know if that's a, a geothermal type of approach, but that's another area where I hear that there's a, a lot of, uh, of interest is in, in doing some geothermal to add to the grid because it does also do the same thing. It allows for us 24-7 as well to have that stability in, in power. And that's what I'm looking for right now is those kinds of solutions. So thanks for the suggestion. Bon is calling in from Drayton Valley with a, uh, a money question. Go ahead, Bon. You're on with uh, Premier Smith. Hello? Hello. Good morning. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, my question is, uh, all these years we've been giving money away to the East, especially Quebec. Uh, as we Albertans, we work hard for our money. I think we should have more say on where the money go or how much money Quebecs get. Because I think all this, all these years, I mean, all the most of the money are coming out from Alberta, going back to the East. And the law that made this law is probably from Quebec. French, and it benefits the East more than the West. I, I think your analysis is correct. <laughs> and that's why I, I've raised that, this actually when I've had a chance to to meet with the, the Quebec Premier, Francois Legault, because he campaigned saying he wanted to wean his province off of its reliance on equalization. And so I, uh, I've said I share that aspiration. And so we'll be, we'll be producing a paper very soon about what that would look like, about how we would be able to eliminate equalization. So just stay tuned on it. Premier Smith, uh, Alberta is calling again. This is a second Alberta is calling campaign uh, to attract more skilled workers from across Ontario and Atlantic Canada. Now, uh, it seems to be working. We're getting a lot of in-migration. But there is uh, a secondary issue with that in that these people need a place to live. And uh, there are text messages uh, today about uh, the cost of rents skyrocketing and uh, um, news articles in this past week uh, wondering whether uh, Calgary specifically is going to become the next uh, London, Ontario or uh, some of the other communities in Ontario where people have moved from the GTA into those communities, and that's also helped force the rents up there and health uh, prices uh, going up there as well. So um, is the second Alberta is calling campaign, uh, it create, creates its own issues. So uh, what, is, what is your comment on that? You know, I think we have a real advantage in Alberta because um, – uh, I've, I've lived in Vancouver. My husband lived in Toronto. And one of the problems that Toronto faces is that they've got the, the Great Lake on uh, on one of its borders. And so they don't have the ability to grow around in every direction. Vancouver's got double problems because they've got the mountains on the one side and the ocean on the other. And so that's part of the reason they're desirable places to live. But the only way for them to to grow is to grow up or grow out. And there's huge demand for, for housing. Alberta is a bit different because we have a Calgary air, we've got a Calgary core and an Edmonton core. Both of them have international airports. We've got a major center in the middle with Lethbridge or with uh, Red Deer. We've also got a, 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 an accessible community in Lethbridge and Medicine Hat. And all of that is in the Southern um, half of the province 
that allows us, if you draw sort of an hour-long commute around every one of those major centers, it creates a huge opportunity from an affordability point of view for people to live anywhere and and to, especially if we start uh, increasing our access through broadband internet so that people can work from home. It seems to me we have a entirely different set of circumstances that should allow for affordability in a way that they just can't answer in Toronto and Vancouver. That being said, there's always an issue of do we have enough supply to be able to meet the demand? Sure. And I'm hearing from, uh, you'll, you'd probably be better able to answer that question, Wayne. But one of the things that I think we can do as a government is coordinate our policies with our, our municipalities so that we can clear away some of the barriers to new construction. Because new construction, keeping up with that demand is the way that you keep prices level. When it comes to the temporary problem of spiking rents, we do have rent subsidy programs, and it may well be that we have to take a closer look at those to make sure that they're adequate. But that's what I would like to do. I'd like the market to work on making sure that we're clearing away any of the barriers to construction so that we can keep on growing. I certainly wouldn't want to see barriers to growth in this province. We've just got so much opportunity, and uh, we, we and I think we've and I think we want to be attracting people from around the around the world and around the and around the country. Keep in mind, we've got 100,000 jobs that are advertising for workers that they haven't been able to fill yet. So we've got a lot more work to do in being able to get more people here. Yeah, and our text uh, line just uh, lit up. Uh, Someone said, uh, uh, because they can, apartment rental companies are recklessly gouging tenants with unprecedented hikes that are unsustainable for all renters, not just a low income. Our two-bedroom in Calgary has gone up $300 a month since August. That's in nine months. Calgary rent spikes 22% in a year, the third highest city in Canada. A rental cap has to be put in place to curb the blatant price gouging that's happening here. If not, what is the solution? Because wages are not going up by 22%. Well, part of the issue is that we've got to do our part in making sure that we keep these uh, the, the costs uh, cost effective for those who are landlords. Because let's remember what's occurred. We've seen an increase in our power prices. We've seen an increase in our home heating prices. And so we, we are we are focused on trying to find ways to be able to make sure that we go back to the, the true Alberta advantage that we had. Those We're li- sitting in a natural gas basin. Those should be two of the lowest prices that a, a customer or a renter or a landlord Lord or business face, and yet they're becoming some of the highest. So that's that's where I think that we can help in the long term. But if you if you cap rents, then it's just going to cause fewer people to to want to build rental accommodation. And so we've got to make sure that we're helping to subsidize while we're getting through this temporary crunch, so that people are are not uh, priced out of the market. But I I want to make sure that we have robust continued growth and construction and remove the barriers out of the way because that's what's going to keep prices normalized. All right, we're going to pause for a break. We'll be back to wrap things up in our final segment on Your Province, Your Premier. Wayne Nelson back with you on Your Province, Your Premier. Your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith one-on-one. If you have a specific question you'd like the Premier to answer, those numbers are 403-974-8255 in Calgary, 780-496-0063 in Edmonton. And the phone lines are... uh, we had a little bit of uh, opportunity for people to call in, and uh, but it is busy. It is busy. So we're going to go to... Uh, hey, Wayne, do you mind that? if yes, I... Go you ahead. Were, I thought you were going to ask me a question about our two fallen officers in uh, Edmonton, and I just want to share a bit of information oh, with this, people okay. who want to be able to help. And I'm sure you've got some other questions on yes. that. Yes. But it was Constable Brett Ryan and uh, Constable Travis Jordan 
both young men with young families. And so one of the things that we have to support families is our Heroes Fund. We brought that in in 2020. So the families will get $100,000 each to be able to help with the costs associated with having to deal with this horrible tragedy. The um, we, But I did, I was just made aware that the Edmonton Police Foundation has started a GoFundMe as well. And so if people want to provide some support to these grieving widows and their, and their, and their kids, you can go online to GoFundMe and just type in Edmonton Police Foundation. It's already up to, I think it was $218,000 before I came on the air. And with the Police Foundation managing that, you know it will go to support the family. So I just wanted to make sure that uh, that people knew about that because it's it's very rare when we when we lose an officer. It was a really rough week for everybody um, as we as we watched this uh, this tragedy unfold and got a few more details. I should also say I, my understanding is there'll be a regimental funeral on March the 26th as well to honor the two of them in their service to Alberta. Sure, and and as as usual, I'm sure there's going to be a participation from other police forces uh, throughout North America and from around the world uh, to honor these. Uh, these fallen officers. Uh, thanks for that, yep. uh, Premier Smith. You bet. Um, okay. Um, jobs. David is calling in from Onaway. Uh, go ahead, David. You're on with Premier Smith. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks for raising the to fallen officers, Danielle. That's important. But my question for you was, well, we need 100,000 people to fill the jobs we have available and other provinces the Bank of Canada is trying to shut them all down because if more people are earning more money, then that's going to increase inflation. They said, don't ask for a pay raise in order to cover the costs that you're suffering now because that will cause more inflation. How do we square that circle? Well, having more people working and generating more revenue is a good thing because those uh, those those folks who are generating revenue are also consumers, and so there's a balance there. I think there probably is just some caution about uh, getting into a wage price spiral that if you end up increasing wages for employees four or five or six or seven percent then that's just going to fuel price increases of four or five or six or seven percent the the uh, the bank of canada as you've heard from pierre polyev he's gone on at length about how it is the bank of canada created this crisis we're trying to counteract it in alberta with the measures that we've taken on reducing the base cost of things that end up driving up the the the, the prices so that's why we've got an electricity rebate program uh we've got price protection on natural gas and we've also made sure that our fuel tax taxes are low. We, we, we pay 50 cents per liter less than they do in British Columbia here. And that then factors into the cost of everything. And some of the analysis I've seen is that our inflation rates are lower than the rest of the country as a result. So we're going to keep on making sure that we're providing the a reasonable support at the right level so we don't fuel the inflation crisis. And it's just a matter of, of waiting to see whether or not this um, the increase in the rates has done enough to, to moderate those increases. I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Okay, a question on the Commonwealth Games. Uh, Don calling in from Calgary. Go ahead, Don. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Thanks for taking my call, Wayne. Uh, Premier Smith, well done so far on, on your uh, administration since you've come to power as Premier. Uh, my concern as a Calgary taxpayer is uh, we were able to defeat the potential cost overruns for this Olympic bid that Calgary uh, voted against by having a uh, a requirement that uh, Premier Notley, uh, but the only thing she did that I approved of was that she made provincial funding of the Commonwealth of the Olympic bid conditional on a, a positive uh, 
result uh, of a plebiscite. plebiscite uh, yes. Will you be having? Uh, will you be making any provincial funding for this uh, Calgary Edmonton seeking a, a Commonwealth Games bid conditional on a plebiscite as well? Well, the, it was a little bit easier to do the plebiscite when it was just a, a Calgary um, event that was being proposed, and the, I think we, I think we saw what happened with uh, Olympics over the last couple of years. I think the, the the one in Japan ended up escalating beyond ten billion dollars and was delayed. And so I think I understand the caution that people have. This one, uh, Commonwealth, is a little bit different because it's uh, summer games and it's uh, it's it's less costly, less risk, I think, but it's also going across more jurisdictions. So it's Calgary, Edmonton, as you mentioned, to Tina, there might be an opportunity for Enoch. There also will be, be an opportunity for Canmore and maybe some of the other mid-sized cities. So I want to see what the bid looks like. That's part of it, is that when we were asked by the uh, bid committee and we saw that Calgary and Edmonton had put in money and we saw that the federal uh, partner had had also identified uh, uh, this this jurisdiction as the as the preferred bid with two million dollars. We were kind of the last one, and and I felt like it, it. We we needed to at least see what the pitch was. We needed to see what the plan is. So um so that's part of the reason why we've agreed to at least do go to this next step and see what the what kind of package they can put together, and then we'll have a full public conversation about it. I don't think that the re- report is going to be available, and the final decision needs to be made on it until August. So they'll. Still be ha- lots of opportunity to have input. All right. Uh, and just before we wrap up, Premier Smith, uh, we had a text. Uh, Jane uh, texted in from Stetler, was asking for that GoFundMe address again, if you have that. The I think the best way, I'll, I'll put it up on my social media, so anyone who follows me on social media can just click through, but if you um, if you would need somebody to assist you, the, the best way to do it is to just go on to GoFundMe, so search for GoFundMe, and then you have to have a, a search for the particular uh, program, and it's the Edmonton Police Foundation. So if um, if you're not as uh, as uh, familiar with searching, maybe get a, a friend or family member to help you out with that. But that's the easiest way for me to, to tell you how to get there. You go to the GoFundMe site, search for Edmonton Police Foundation, and you'll be able to find it. Premier Smith, once again, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Talk to you again, Wayne. We'll do this again next week at the same time. I'm Wayne Nelson. You've been listening to Your Province, Your Premier.